The Mountain Vista Baptist Church podcast features the preaching and teaching of Pastor Robert Perry and the guest speakers of Mountain Vista Baptist. The purpose of this podcast is to help believers grow, to edify the saints, and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. The fact that he would die for us and extend his love for us, even though we were unworthy, and that's why his grace is, is an unmerited favor on those of us who don't deserve it, but I'm thankful that he chose to die for me. And he chose to die for you as well, my friend. If you don't know him as your Savior this morning, you can know him. And uh, he uh, died just so that you might be able to know him and have a relationship with him. But I want to invite you to take your Bibles to uh, 1 Timothy chapter number 3, please. 1 Timothy chapter number 3, we're going to read the first seven verses. And uh, here on Sunday mornings, we've been studying a series that we've entitled The Anatomy of the Church. And we've been looking at the uh, distinctives and inner workings of a church as far as what Scripture says uh, that a church ought to look like. And so we started a couple weeks ago. Uh, with some considerations about the church, just a brief overview, kind of laying a, a simple foundation uh, so that we might be able to have that to springboard off of and to build upon as we move through the rest of this series as well. Of course, we spent some days uh, considering the characteristics of the church, uh, some phrases like the body of Christ and the pillar of the ground, pillar and ground of truth, and we discussed those things for a couple of weeks. And then last week we looked at uh, the the origin of the church, if you may. We looked at specifically the commencement of the church, the, the beginning of it when Jesus uh, started the church, and and the fact that it was that it's His. That the church is his, right? And uh, we discussed that greatly last week. And we can be guilty of having our own thoughts and ideologies and imposing them into this church or into a church or the idea of a church. And our ideas aren't God's ideas. And therefore, we expect the church to be something that God never expected for it to be. And so we got to have that right foundation that the church is his. And uh, it doesn't matter what we want the church to look like or what we want the church to be or what we want the church to accomplish. God's already laid that out in Scripture. He's already said what it's supposed to be and what it's supposed to accomplish and what, to an extent, it ought to look like as well. And so we want to go back to that. And we want to look at that and make sure that our church lines up with what God says a church ought to be. And again, because we have a community that is uh, heavily military and sometimes the Lord just moves people from place to place, I desire that those who uh, attend Mountain Vista Baptist Church, if that ever happens to be the case for them and their future holds that they have to go to another city or another region and are tasked with trying to find a biblical church to attend, a one that matches up with what the Word of God says it ought to be, that they'd have an understanding of what a church ought to be, scripturally speaking. And so we've discussed that over the last several weeks, but we're progressing now through this series. And uh, we're coming to the portion of the series where we're going to discuss the offices of the church. And in particular, there are two offices that the Lord ordained and set up as far as leading and serving the church to accomplish what He already said it ought to accomplish. We've discussed some of those things, and we're going to discuss in the future how everyone can be involved in that as well. But today, we want to take some time and discuss those offices that he ordained to accomplish the leading and the serving of the church. Now, those two offices just so happen to be found in this one chapter. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, the first seven verses are devoted to looking at the office of the pastor. And then we look at verse number 8, it says, likewise, must deacons be grave. And so as we move on and through that chapter, we find the second office is the office of the deacon and what the Lord expects from them as well. And we're just going to look at the pastor today, and we'll do this for today and next week as well, at least. And then we'll move on for a couple of weeks looking at that office of the deacon also. Uh, but this morning, I want to bring a message uh, considering the role and the qualifications of a pastor. The role and the qualifications of a pastor. Now, here's the thing about a message like this. I can easily skip over this stuff, and unless you study it yourself, leave you ignorant. And therefore, you don't have any idea of what I ought to be doing as a pastor. But when I bring a message like this, I leave myself in a place where I'm vulnerable. And, if you, and, I, and, and, and I'm going to be up front. The invitation today is going to be one of the, well, it's threefold. One of them is going to be that you will graciously help keep me accountable in what the Lord expects of me as your pastor. All right? But also, 
I want you to understand what God expects of me so that you can expect it of me. I want you to know what God expects of me so that you don't expect more of me than God even expects of me as well. And so we're going to look at the role and the qualifications of a pastor, look at some more nitty-gritty, like tangible workings of it, even as we get into next week. But read with me beginning in verse number one of 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3 and verse number one, this is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach. Not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous. One that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. Uh, For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Our Father, we come to you this morning, we thank you for your goodness, and uh, we thank you for the service that has taken place already, uh, for the songs that have focused on on your glory and and worship of you. We do sing your mighty power today, how great you are, Lord. And uh, Lord, I just praise you and thank you for your goodness, the fact that we can worship you as King and Lord. And God, now as we... Consider uh, your grace as well that has been mentioned through song. Lord, praise you and thank you for that. Let us not uh, trample it underfoot, as the scripture says, and to make it of none effect. But Lord, that we would realize your grace on our life and that we would respond accordingly. And as uh, 1 John says, that we would love you because you first loved us. This morning, as we consider the portion of scripture before us today, Lord, would you help us as we... Uh, study it, that your spirit would guide us, that you'd give me the words to speak as I deliver it, that I'd be true to uh, your, your word and uh, declare it uh, uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a true and, and uh, positive light, Lord. And I ask now that you'd help us to receive it as well and that you'd be honored and glorified through everything that is done and that your will be accomplished today. And I do ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I told the first service... And uh, I'll mention again to you this morning that uh, if we were to put out a survey, all right, piece of paper, and you, and it had one, it was a one-question survey. I asked the people that came to the first service at 8:45. I asked this crowd that is here at 11. Uh, I know there's some that are not here today because of uh, being out of town. There are some that are not here today because of illness or health. There are some that are not here today. They just can't make it. So there's some that are watching online also. There's people that aren't even part of Mountain Vista Baptist Church. That They don't even live in this area. They could never attend this church in person unless they traveled here. And they still watch with us online. And I'm, I, I, I'm humbled by that. And I'm thankful for that as well, uh, that they would take the time to want to study the Word of God with us through that. Avenue, but we could include them into this survey as well. One question survey. Paper handed out, and the question is this What should a pastor look like? I tell you, if I were to ask that question and everyone here answer it to the best of your ability, everyone online, everyone that was here earlier, everyone that we gave that questionnaire to, that survey, and I went through all of the answers, I promise you, I'd probably have as many answers as there are people that had answered it. Because everybody has their own opinion. They have their own ideas of it. In fact, Brother Dean, you might remember that a couple of months ago, my parents were in town and we were going out shooting. And I talked with you about stopping by to pick up some ammo and stuff. And so he said, well, I won't be there uh, when you come by, but I'll leave it with one of my employees behind the desk already bundled so it can be a quick transaction. And you guys don't have to spend a bunch of time in the shop. You can get out there and enjoy the time together throwing some lead down range. And I said, that sounds like a plan, right? And so my family pulled into the shop, and uh, we got out, and we walked in, and I said hello to the man behind the desk, and, and he said hello back to me, and I said, hey, I said, uh, Dean left some things for me, I think it was bagged up back there, and he kind of looked at me with this perplexed look, and I said, I'm Dean's pastor. He's like, oh, yeah, I know what you're talking about. He's like, he looked at me again, and he said, you don't look like a pastor. <laughs> and uh, I didn't know whether to take that as a compliment 
or an insult, actually. Uh, but he literally, he looked at me, he's like, you don't, you don't look like a pastor. Now, I was in jeans and a t-shirt and a ball cap and all that. Maybe that's what he meant. But I wasn't going to preach a funeral, folks. I was going to put some lead into something, all right? And so I'm not wearing a suit when I go out there to the desert. I had my boots on and all of that. So maybe that's what he meant. Maybe he said, you're not tall enough to be a pastor. I don't know what he meant by all of that. Uh, but he just looked at me, he said, you don't look like a pastor. And if I were to ask you, what should a pastor look like? I'd have all the different answers. But thankfully, we live in the days of technology. And the internet has told me what a perfect pastor should look like. And you know that everything you find on the internet is true, right? I mean, Abraham Lincoln said so. So everything you find on the internet is true, and this has to be true as well. And so I want to share with you this morning what a perfect pastor looks like. I mean, after hundreds of years of study and research and searching, the perfect pastor has been found, and he is the church elder who is able to please every person. This perfect pastor, he preaches exactly 20 minutes and then sits down. The perfect pastor, he condemns sin, but he never steps on anybody's toes while doing so. The perfect pastor, he works from 8 o'clock in the morning until 10 o'clock at night. He does everything from preaching sermons to cleaning the commode and sweeping the floors. The perfect pastor, he makes only $400 a week, but he gives 100 of it back to the church. He drives a late model car, buys lots of books. My wife says that's, that's true. <laughs> buys lots of books, wears fine clothes, and has a nice family. The perfect pastor... He always stands ready to contribute to every other good cause, too, and to help the panhandlers who drop by the church on their way to somewhere else. The perfect pastor, he's 36 years of age, <laughs> and he's been preaching for 40 years. The perfect pastor, he's tall, but on the short side, he's heavy set in a thin sort of way, and very handsome also. The perfect pastor has eyes of blue or brown, to fit the occasion. He wears his hair parted right down the middle. The left side is dark and straight. The right side is brown and wavy. The perfect pastor has a burning, a burning desire to work with the youth, and he spends all of his time with the elderly. The perfect pastor, he smiles all the time while keeping a straight face because he has a keen sense of humor that finds him seriously dedicated. The perfect pastor, he makes at least 15 calls a day on church members, spends all of his time evangelizing non-members, and he's always found in his study, if he's ever needed. The unfortunate thing about this perfect pastor is he burned himself out and he died at the age of 32, and uh, so he's no longer around. But of course, this fictitious and, and goofy account of a uh, perfect pastor, uh, just there for a little levity here this morning, we understand that the perfect pastor doesn't exist. But the Bible does give us qualifications as to the individual who fulfills that role of a pastor and what they ought to, how they ought to line up to the Scriptures as well. Now, here in 1 Timothy, the Apostle Paul is writing to a young man named Timothy. That's why the book is named that way. He's writing to Timothy, who was a young preacher boy. He was a young man that was serving in ministry. And in fact, the Apostle Paul had taken Timothy with him to Ephesus left Timothy in Ephesus to do some ministry there, to work on some issues and some problems that were taking place in the church and help lead that church in a God-honoring fashion. And not long after Paul left Timothy there in Ephesus, Paul would take time to write back to Timothy, check in on him, encourage him, uh, give him a few more instructions just to maybe remind him of some things that he already knew, but say, hey, I'm, I know I'm not there to help you along these lines, and I just want to encourage you in the Lord to stay true and faithful to the ministry. And that's what we have here in the book of 1 Timothy. In the first chapter we read, he deals with the necessity of sound doctrine. Now, we aren't going to go back and study that. That's not the message for today, but that's what he talks about as he writes to Timothy in chapter 1. In chapter number 2, Paul writes to Timothy, and he's dealing uh, with the conduct of public worship in chapter 2 and, and how a, a corporate gathering, uh, not every aspect of it, but a few aspects of how it ought to work and how it ought to flow. And then, all, then we come here to chapter number 3. And in chapter number 3, the apostle Paul is writing Timothy, 
and he deals with the necessary qualifications for those who lead and serve the church in the roles of pastor and deacon. And before I go any further considering these roles and these qualifications here this morning, let me just first state this, that everyone can and should serve God. All right, let me say that again. I don't want you to miss what I just said. I know you're thinking about lunch and maybe you dozed off for a moment. I don't know. Uh, But everyone can and should serve God. Everyone has the opportunity and has some ability to serve God. Now, our abilities are not all the same. There are plenty of people that are sitting in this, these pews right here today that are much more talented than I am. And although our, our, our abilities are different, we all have certain abilities that can be used to be able to serve God. So I believe everyone can and should serve God. I believe everyone has the opportunity and some sort of ability to serve God. And every, every believer, every Christian should serve according to the unique gifts and abilities in which God has gifted them with. However, certain positions in service for the Lord have specific qualifications. And the, you could put it this way, the greater the responsibility, the higher the expectation for the ability, conduct, and character of the individual. And when it comes to the pastor, we'll, we'll get into this some today and even more in the next weeks ahead, but when it comes to the position of the pastor, part of the pastor's role or job description, if you may, is that of an under-shepherd. Jesus is the chief, the perfect shepherd. But the pastor serves as a physical uh, embodiment. I, I don't want to make. I, I don't want to make myself sound more than I am. <laughs> but I, I, I'm a physical representation of God's leadership within the confines of the church. Does that make sense here this morning? Uh, I represent God uh, on, on His behalf before the people of the church. Does that mean that you don't have a relationship with God Himself? No, no, absolutely not. You have a personal relationship with God. Uh, but when it comes to the matters of the church. Uh, He has allowed for men to stand following him to be able to direct his work and his will. And so with that, as a representative of God in this institution he's called the church, it's an important role. And therefore, there's some importance of character and conduct and ability as well. So without belaboring the point any longer here this morning, I want you to notice with me number one, in verse number one, the pastor's call. We find here in verse number one of chapter three of First Timothy, it says, this is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. Now, this is actually the second of five uh, times that Paul uses this type of phrasing where he says it's a true saying or maybe a faithful saying. We see it in First Timothy 1. We see it in First Timothy 3. We see it in First Timothy 4. We see it in 2 Timothy chapter 2. We also see it when he writes to Titus in Titus chapter number 3 also. Now, when Paul says this phrase, this is a true saying, it's reminiscent or reminds us of what Jesus would say in the Gospels. Jesus would use a phrase something like this. Verily, verily, I say unto thee. Or truly, truly, I say unto thee. And uh, when Jesus would say that, he'd say, verily, verily, I say unto thee. It's like, hey, Listen up, because this is important. And when Paul uses this here in, when he writes to Timothy and when he writes to Titus, when he says, hey, this is a true saying, it's like, hey, this is important for you to know. This is something you don't want to miss. And when he says, hey, this is something that you want to know, this is a true saying, uh, that if a man desire a, the office of a bishop, he desires a good thing. This is a fundamental principle, if you may. And what he's getting at is this, is that the pastor's job, the pastor's job is a noble calling. The pastor's job is a noble calling. And when he says, if a man desires the office of a bishop, he's not saying if a man desires being a pa- to be a pastor uh, for, uh, for selfish gain. 
He's not saying that if a man desires it in the attitude of, well, whatever accolades I might be able to accomplish and whatever things I might be able to receive because of that position or title. What he's saying is if a man has the heart to serve God in that capacity, to humble himself to be simply a vessel or a tool that is used by the master, that it truly is a good, noble thing. Now, the scripture uses a couple of different words to describe or to title a pastor. Uh, the one we most often use is that word pastor, in fact. And the word pastor in, in the Bible comes, comes from a Greek word, uh, poiamine, which means shepherd. So when we find the word pastor in the Bible, uh, in the New Testament, it is referring to the role of a shepherd. In fact, in Spanish, uh, if you were to read, a, if you could read a Spanish Bible, the word for pastor is the same word for shepherd in Spanish, because that's exactly what it means. It's that's what it's alluding to when it's used. We've, we're not going to take the time to go there. We'll actually be in First Peter next week, I believe. Uh, but First Peter chapter uh, two and verse number twenty-eight, I believe it is, uh, places an emphasis upon the responsibility of the leadership of the church uh, to shepherd the flock. Now, one thing I do want to make sure that we are aware of and understand, though, is that a shepherd serves to be able to lead, to give guidance, to give even to an extent some protection as well, uh, some provision also. But understand this this morning, that a shepherd never gave birth to any of his sheep. Right? You understand that, right? He's, he just serves them. He helps guide them and provides in certain ways. But he's not the parent. He's not the father. He's not the mother. I'm not the father of this church. I know some religions use that terminology, but I have no position in that way. I just am a shepherd that helps guide and helps give direction and helps give some provision as well. God is your heavenly father as a Christian. He is, he is your ultimate authority. And I just help give guidance that ought to point you closer uh, to the Lord and point you closer to His will. The Bible also uses the word bishop, which we find in our text here in 1 Timothy chapter 3. The word bishop comes from the Greek word episkopos, which means an overseer. That's what we're finding being spoken of here in 1 Timothy chapter 3 in these first two, two verses. It's emphasizing the, the fact that a pastor is charged with overseeing the local church and as such, he has the responsibility for the spiritual well-being of those in the church as well. These responsibilities of an overseer, they involve such things as managing the church. You can look back in chapter 5 and verse number 17 of this, of this book of 1 Timothy. Uh, his responsibility as an overseer is to preach the word as well. Again, in, in chapter 5 and verse number 17 of this book. The responsibility is to pray. In James chapter 5 and verse number 14, it discusses that. Uh, he's to help care for the needs of the church. We find this in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verses 1 and 2. Again, in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verses 1 and 2, the responsibility of an overseer is to be an example for others to be able to follow. In Acts chapter 15, in verse number 22, he's, it says that part of the overseeing task of a pastor is to lead in setting the church policy to an extent as well, and to ordain elders or leaders, as we read in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse number 14. That's just a few, and we'll discuss those in, in greater detail even probably next week as we move on, but that's what it means when it uses the word bishop. So it uses the word pastor, a shepherd, a provider a leader. When it uses the word bishop, it's an overseer, more of like a managerial situation and overseeing aspects, making sure that they are accomplishing what God wants them to be accomplished. A steward, it would be a good word to use there as well. And then the Bible uses the word elder, which is the Greek word uh, presbyteros. Uh, and we find this in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse number 17. And I believe that's speaking to a, a, a level of maturity. Now listen, when we, we think back, it used to, there used to be a time where parents taught their young people to respect their elders because of their age. Not because they necessarily had a position, but with their age brought some maturity, brought some life lessons, 
some ability to speak into a person's life just because of where they've been and where they've come to. And when the Bible uses this term elder, I believe it's speaking to a level of maturity that has the, that has the and to an extent maybe it's even God-given uh, to be able to speak into a person's life as if they were the grandfather, uh, if, as if they were someone uh, that was an elder in their life to help give direction. Uh, for example, Paul sent for the elders of the church of Ephesus, uh, but in addressing them, he also called them bishops in Acts chapter 20. And so he sent for the elders, but then he addressed them as bishops, and we see it speaking of the same individuals. And so the Bible uses the term elder, bishop, and pastor, if you may, interchangeably, but it speaks to different roles that they might have in accomplishing those tasks. So we, number one tonight, this morning, we see the pastor's call. Number two with me, notice the pastor's character. As we move into verses two and three, there's several things that are outlined. And, and uh, given a pos- th- th- this position, there's some characteristics, some character that the pastor ought to be able to hold and to meet. One thing you, it is interesting to note that in the first century, in the early church, a person was never given a position in the church because of the popularity. A person was never given a position in the church because of their influence in their community. They, the person didn't become a pastor because they were a good political leader. The person didn't become a deacon because they owned a business in town and a lot of people knew them. It had nothing to do with their popularity or influence, but it had everything to do with what they had allowed the Lord to develop in their life, develop these characters. And so what we have here in chapter 3 and verses 1 through 7 is, a, is like a one-stop shop for a person to be able to go to and find, this is what the, what the Lord expects of the men that he has called into his service in the role of a pastor. Let's look at these really quickly and just give a brief explanation of each. The first characteristic is that of blameless. Now that word blameless, it literally means to take hold of. Now I'm going to be the first to tell you this morning that I am a sinner. And you can blame me as being a sinner, and that would be a true accusation. I can't do anything about that. And if you thought I wasn't, I'm sorry I just burst your buffle, but I am a sinner. I, I make mistakes. But when the Bible uses this word blameless, it literally means to take hold of. What is being said here is that there ought to not be anything in the pastor's life in which the, the, the devil can take a hold of and pull him down to ruin him to ruin his ministry. There ought to be nothing in the pastor's life that an unsaved individual in the world could grab a hold of and make accusations against and blame them about and pull them down and ruin their character, ruin their ministry. Could there be false accusations made? Absolutely. But should they be able to have to hold any weight? Absolutely not. And so just because an accusation is made doesn't make it true. I mean, it's true, but if an accusation is made and it holds weight, that means it's latched on. It had something to latch on to and can pull down and can destroy. The reason this is so important is, is, is several things. One, because they are, a pastor is, is, is a special target for, the, for Satan. If, if, a, if, a, if, if Satan can ruin the credibility of the man that stands in, behind the pulpit to declare the word of God, then he's also one at ruining God's credibility in some people's eyes. The reason why it's so important is because many a times the pastor's fall has a great potential to harm the cause of Christ because of their position. The fact that they have failed and fallen has a great potential to give the cause of Christ a huge black eye. Another reason is because the greater, with greater knowledge brings greater accountability. You ever known somebody and you said, you know better than that? Well, obviously a pastor ought to know better than that. And that goes on to the next thing. The reason why it's so important is because oftentimes their fall is very hypocritical. Because often they have fallen over the things that they've already preached about not doing. And so we see that it's vitally important that a pastor guard his character and, try, and make sure, do his best to yield to the Spirit so that there's nothing that he could be blameless in, nothing that he could have said about him that could grab a hold and pull him down. And then it goes on next to say that not only should the pastor be blameless, but he also should be the husband of one wife. This has the literal meaning of a one-woman man. Now, I'm going to share four interpretations of this. 
I'm not going to give my specific feeling on this, all right? If you want to know more about it, you can talk to me afterwards, and I'll give you some more information about where I stand specifically on this phrasing of a husband of one wife. But there's a few possibilities. One possibility is that Paul could be excluding those who have never been married from being a pastor, meaning that unless a man is married, that he can't be a pastor, husband of one wife. Therefore, if it means that he's not, if he's not married, then he can't be a pastor. That's an interpretation. That was a thought that has been put out there. Another thought was that Paul was saying, underneath inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that a man could not be a, a pastor. It would be excluding those who have more than one wife at one time a polygamous type of viewpoint. And so if a man had multiple wives, he wasn't fit to be a pastor. That's one way to interpret this portion of Scripture as well. A third way to interpret this portion of Scripture is that Paul would be excluding those who have been divorced and have been remarried. This is probably the most universally accepted explanation that is out there, that if a man has been uh, divorced and remarried, that he's not fit for the uh, position of ministry, partially because of what goes on to be said later on about ruling his, his uh, house as well. But nevertheless, that's just, that's an interpretation of it. The last one is this, is that Paul could have been making a general stipulation that leaders must be faithful to his one wife. And those, those are, if you pick up any book written by any pastor or any theologian, that discusses this particular portion of Scripture about a, per, man, a pastor being the husband of one wife, those are in general one of the four things you're going to find read and said. And you're going to have men on every realm of the spectrum. Good men that are very conservative, good men that are a little more liberal, and everything in between, and they're going to probably fall into one of those four categories. I think what we need to just take into consideration is this, that a one-woman man a husband of one wife, is going to be one that is devoted in his heart and in his mind to the woman who is his wife. That faithfulness, devotion, is the overwhelming characteristic that is trying to be, be persuaded here or discussed here when it says he's a husband of one wife. The next characteristic, not only blameless and husband of one wife, but also it uses the term vigilant. This means that the, this man should be able to be one who controls himself. The church leader should be one who can be able to be counted on to give a sensible and sober judgment. That when catastrophe maybe hits, that he's able to keep cool under pressure. Not saying that he does, isn't concerned or worried or even frets to an extent, but he's able to give a sensible and sober judgment on whatever, whatever comes his way. One thing, when people come, and talk, come to my office and they ask to talk to me, most of the time what I do is I prepare myself to hear the worst. I really do. Because that way, if it's anything less than that, I'm pleasantly surprised. That way, if it is the worst, I'm not like, oh, I can't believe that you just... So, what kind of reaction would that be? Like, you come to your pastor. Our pastor, I really need to tell you about something I did. I made a bonehead mistake. I really messed up. <gasps> I can't believe you did something. You wouldn't want me to respond that way. So when something like that happens, I, I already mentally prepare myself not to overreact to whatever is brought my way. And I think that's what the Bible's saying, that we, uh, man, the man ought to be sober, be able to give a sensible and uh, a vigilant, I'm sorry, a sensible, sober judgment. It goes on to use that word again, sober, which means that he possesses a serious attitude and ought to be serious about the work he's called to. Now, this isn't to say that the pastor doesn't have a sense of humor. In fact, if a pastor doesn't have a sense of humor, I don't think he'll remain a pastor very long. <laughs> However, though, I, as a pastor, I want to take a serious consideration and note at the work in which God has called me to do. I don't want to take it flippantly. I don't want to just play around like it doesn't matter. It does matter because God's business is the greatest business in all the world. And so therefore, I, must be, I should be sober. As we find that it says that he should be of good behavior. That's pretty self-explanatory. But if you need it explained a little further, like the old preacher once was purported has to have said, he said there are two sides of the gospel. There's the believing side, and then there's the behaving side. And how simple as that might be, that's the truth, my friends. 
And as a, a pastor ought to just be known as one who behaves himself appropriately at the appropriate time and manner. And the Bible says that a pastor ought to be given to hospitality. Can I say we, we consider this, that he ought to be a man who lives open-handed. Not someone who lives with a clenched fist, this is mine, but one who lives open-handed and is willing to share, to be hospitable as, it's, as it would use there as well. The next one might be the only professional qualification that is given in this whole list of qualities here, and that is the, the phrase where it says, apt to teach. Obviously, uh, as a pastor, one of my ro specific roles is to do what I'm doing right now, to deliver the Word of God. And if I'm not able to deliver it and teach it and to rightly divide it, then I'm not suitable uh, for the position that is here. And we understand that not everybody is at a position where they could be apt to teach. That doesn't mean that they couldn't learn to be, but not everyone is. And so there's a development that needs to be there, and a pastor ought to be able to teach the Word. He goes on to say that a pastor should not be given to wine. I want to share what Albert Barnes wrote about this. Albert Barnes says specifically, he says, the way in which the apostle mentions the subject of wine uh, here would lead us, to lead us fairly to suppose that he did not mean to commend it, its use in any sense, that he regarded its use as dangerous, and that he would wish ministers to avoid it altogether. A minister will do no injury to himself or others by letting it entirely alone, but he may do injury by indulging in it. See, when it says that uh, a, a pastor ought to be uh, not given to wine, and I, 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 I totally hold, hold to that. I don't believe that a pastor ought to be known for even social drinking because, because there should never be a point where the, the man that represents God is under the influence of anything else other than the, God, the, the Spirit of God. Some might want to then take argument, though, against this, because later on in the same book, in 1 Timothy chapter number 5 and verse number 23, Paul, writing to the same exact person, tells Timothy, take a little wine for thy stomach's sake. Well, what's the deal here? Now there's a contradiction in the word. No, there's not. And as, as John MacArthur states it this way, he says, in ancient times, most people consumed wine since it was the staple liquid to drink. The water was impure, and mixing the wine with the water not only significantly diluted the alcohol content, but it purified the water. A mixing of eight parts water to one part wine was common, so as to avoid any uh, dissipating effects. Timothy was even reluctant, reluctant to take mixed wine, so as to not set an example that could cause someone to stumble. Thus he was committed to abstinence, and Paul had to tell him, no longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Drinking only water was contributing to t Timothy's poor health. And so what he's saying here, he's, I'm not he's not telling Timothy to go get drunk. He's saying, take a little for medicinal purposes. How many of you have ever had NyQuil? <laughs> All right, guys, let's, not, let's be honest here. Look at the ingredients. All right, all that's being said here is that that is the purpose behind it. My friends, I have never tasted alcohol, not once in my entire life. Never. And I don't plan to ever either. I plan to abstain from it, other than maybe if it's in medicines. But this, there is no contradiction in the word. The clear teaching is that the pastor should only be under the influence of the Spirit and nothing else. He goes on to say that he's no striker. This is a term that would describe a man who's always looking for a fight. I promise you that a pastor should not be on the front newspaper, front page of the newspaper as being the one that's always getting in a fight on Saturday night. That should not be the case for the pastor. He should not be that attitude. He goes on to say that he should not be greedy, a filthy lucre. This is not to say that a pastor should not make a living, but this is to say that the pastor should not live for the money pastor ought to live his life just, just desiring wholly to give his heart freely to the Lord in his service. 
He goes on to say that he ought to be patient. That's self-explanatory. Not a brawler. That would mean that someone that is always argumentative. You know, you've ever known somebody that always has to take the opposite stance than you do? Or the, 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 the crowd? They're always argumentative. And that, that should not be the attitude that a pastor always has. Unfortunately, I've known pastors like that. They're against everything. And even things God's not against, they're against it. And that ought not be the attitude that permeates the pastor. And lastly, he says that they ought to not be covetous. Again, that they ought not be selfish in their indulgences. Thirdly, this morning, I'm going to quickly just close up and give you these last few things before we dismiss. But thirdly, we notice the pastor's community. Because the Bible speaks here of two specific roles in which the pastor works in. First, his family, and then the church. And in his own family, he says he's ought to be one that rules his own house well, that his children are in subjection with all gravity. This would just mean that he maintains proper dignity within the relationships in his household. On top of that, it says that he ought to do that in his family because it's important how he, how he leads his own family affects how he'll lead God's family. And we find here that he says in verse number uh, five, if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? In essence, you could say that the first is the proving grounds for the second. And I, I, th- I think of Moses in, in the Old Testament in Exodus. Moses is about to go back to Egypt. He's about to lead the children of Israel out of bondage. And he's about to take them into the, pro- well, lead them hopefully to the promised land eventually. But before he goes back, there's this great sickness that comes on to uh, Moses. It's because there's some in- circumstances in his own home that have not been fixed, right? In that per- portion of Scripture, Moses becomes deathly ill. And as he's laying there in bed, just writhing in pain, his wife comes to him and says to him these words, A bloody husband thou art. And the reason for that is because... One of the signs that God gave to the children of Israel to set them apart from the world was that of circumcision. Moses had not circumcised his son, and therefore, uh, we read the portion of Scripture, that's what his wife does. And then God takes his hand off of Moses that was judging him and bringing that that pain and punishment, and then Moses was able to go on into Egypt. What that's a a picture of is the fact that Moses wasn't ruling his own house, wasn't leading his own house. So how is he going to lead millions of people out of Egypt into the wilderness? And so we see that the importance of leading our home well is vitally important for the pastor as well. Number four this morning, notice the pastor's capability. It says in verse number six that he's not to be a novice. The reason for that is because there's a necessary warning that comes with this. And that is that if, uh, uh, no matter, when a person is not very well trained, not very well prepared for the circumstance at hand, even the slightest of victories can cause them to have a big head. And the Bible says that that big head or pride, well, it says uh, pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Now, lastly, as I close, number five, notice with me the pastor's credibility. In verse number seven, it says, Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without. This is talking about the public reputation of the pastor. That he ought to have a proper and good one. In Colossians chapter four, verse number five, Paul says, Walk in wisdom towards them that are without. In uh, first, first Corinthians 10 and verse number 32, it says, Give none offense, neither to the Jews nor the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 15, Paul says that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse, gener- perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Obviously, it's important that every Christian have a good testimony. A good name, Old Testament says, is rather to be chosen than even find uh, precious stones and, and silver. And so what we find here is that everyone should, but the pastor specifically ought to have a good reputation within this community as well. We live in an internet age where everybody can be nationwide or globally just like that. I'm telling you something, my friends. If you see someone that's a pastor that's constantly in the news for a bunch of negative things, he's not meeting this qualification. 
Not, not at least if the reason why he's in the news isn't because he's standing for truth. I, can, I could name you some pastors right now that are blowing up the internet for stupid stuff they've said. Stupid stuff that ain't in the Bible. And what they're doing is bringing a black eye to the name of Christ. It'd be better for that man to shut up and sit down than to cause problems for the, for the name of God. Now, if I stand up and I say, thus saith the Lord, and the scripture clearly states it, and they put me on the news and blast me over it, that's one thing. But when I'm saying goofy things about witches in my church and autism and all this type of thing, and you, you, you think I'm crazy, I could show you the videos afterwards. Well, I'm not doing anything for the cause of Christ other than hindering it. This is what the Bible's speaking of here that I should not be a hindrance to the cause of Christ in this community or even in our world today, nationwide or worldwide, because of my ignorance. Now, all of this being said, notice that's pretty big uh, piece to, chew, uh, to, to bite off right here. Pretty p- tough pill to swallow. And I think Paul kind of noticed that as well. Because look at verse number 16 before we close. Verse number 16, it says, "...without controversy..." Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. He goes on, justified in the spirit. That's who he's talking about. God was. Goes on to say he was seen of angels. Goes on to say that he was preached about, uh, unto the Gentiles. Go on to say that God, he believed on in the world. And was, God was received up into glory. What Paul go, switches his attention on, from is from Timothy and all the things he has to do to God and his sufficiency in all that needs to be accomplished. See, my friends, if I had to meet all these criterias, I'd fail. I might as well go home right now, close up the doors, because no man would meet these criterias on their own. But God is the strength. And this is where the the rubber meets the road. If I can yield my life to the Spirit as your pastor, then these things will be evidenced. This, This will be the work that God works in me, and this will be the things He develops in me. And if you ever have to find yourself looking for another church where if you moved away and you're looking for a, a church that meets the criteria of what the Bible says and a pastor that meets the qualifications, these are the things you ought to be looking for. Not somebody that gets up and sounds really good, that's really charismatic and uses illustrations every Sunday when he preaches, uses uh, props every Sunday when he preaches, brings people up on stage and lets them mark out their Bible and cut pe- pieces out and all that type of thing and do cool, real thing, little cool things. You're not ought to be looking for somebody who dresses like the the, 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 the hippest person in all the world and wears tennis shoes and all of that. I'm not saying that that's anything wrong with any of that. But I'm saying that's not what you look for in a pastor. What you look for in a pastor is found in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And if you find that, you don't have to worry about anything else. You don't have to worry about whether, because if they meet up to those qualifications and that criteria, then, then they're going to be yielded and following the Lord in what they accomplish. Now, as I said, the invitation this morning is threefold. One, I pray that you will have a biblical understanding of a pastor and what his qualifications are. Number two, I pray that having that biblical understanding of what a pastor is, his qualifications are, that you will graciously help keep me accountable to those things. Not coming to me and saying, Pastor, but graciously help keep me accountable to this. Then thirdly, that at the same time, you'll pray with me and for me that the Lord will equip me to accomplish these things. Because I can't do it by myself. I can't do it in my own power. And the more you know, the better off you are. Knowledge is power, right? And when, when you have a, a proper understanding of what Scripture says that the church ought to be, what a pastor ought to be, and what qualifies them to be so, we're only better off because of it. We're only better off because of it. And so would you stand to your feet with me this morning? With her heads bowed and her eyes closed, I know we didn't speak much about the fact of the, that every single person needs a Savior. In fact, I'd say that'd be the number one characteristic of a pastor is that they must be saved. However, though, every single person needs that. Every single individual needs Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, 
I just want to help you understand today that He died for you, and He loves you, and He wants you to be saved. He wants you to have a home in heaven and a relationship with Him. That relationship with God began for me when I was a six-year-old little boy. And just as best as I knew how, I called out to the Lord, knowing that I was a sinner and knowing that I needed a Savior. I said, Jesus, save me, and He saved my soul. And you might not be the most well-rounded in the Scriptures, You might not know where every book of the Bible can be found, but that's not necessary for you to know Jesus. All you need to know to have a relationship with Him is that He died for you because He loves you, and He rose again so that you could have a home in heaven. If you just trust Him, in faith believe in Him, He would save you. Now, how many here would say, Pastor, you know what? I'm saved. I know that heaven's my home. There's been a time, a place where I've trusted on Christ as my personal Savior. I have been born again. Could I just rejoice with you this, this morning? Just slip your hand up and right back down. Hands all across the auditorium. I praise God for that. The fact that I'm in the presence of other believers today, that's just an encouragement to me. But I wonder if there would be anyone here today who just to be honest enough to say, Pastor, honestly, if I die today, I'm not sure that heaven's my home. I don't know that I've been born again, that Christ is my personal Savior. Now, I want to embarrass you or call you out or anything like that, but would you allow me to pray for you today that the Lord would... Speak to your heart, give you the faith to be able to trust Him. And if you're here and you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, would you just slip your hand up and write back down so I could pray for you today? Anybody like that? Just slip your hand up and write back down. Then one last question. Who here would say, Pastor, you know what? Maybe you knew these things that I just preached about. Maybe these are new to you from 1 Timothy chapter 3, but it doesn't matter where you come from on that. Who here today would say, Pastor, after hearing the message today, And hearing what the Word of God has to say about a pastor and his qualifications. Pastor, I am thankful that I have the Word of God to give me insight as to what a pastor ought to be. I'm thankful that I have the Word of God to help lead me, to help keep my pastor accountable in that as well. And pastor, I'm committing to pray with you that the Lord would work in your life to help you to be that pastor that he expects you to be. Now, if that's, your, if that's how the Lord spoke into your heart today and you'd be willing to, to enter into that covenant with me today, would you raise your hand and write, uh, just slip your hand up right back down? I'm going to ask, uh, I'm going to have a word of prayer. Then the piano is going to begin to play. And I'm going to give you the opportunity to, to just take that time right now to pray and call on to the Lord and ask him to uh, help through this situation. Help him. Maybe, maybe, you, maybe, maybe there's a change of heart that needs to take place in your heart today. Maybe there was expectations that God doesn't even have concerning the leadership of the church. And maybe you need to get right that as well and ask the Lord to just work on your heart in that way. I don't know how the Lord spoke to you, but if he has, I want to give you the opportunity to respond today. Our Father, thank you for this morning and your goodness. Lord, I ask now that you'd bless our time together uh, that we've had in your word and that your will would be accomplished in this invitation. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.